have your Bible with you, you could open it to Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what, is to be, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The word of the Lord. Goodbyes are never easy and rarely eloquent. And that is especially true when you are saying words that may be the last words that you might say to someone that you love. Occasionally, usually in novels, uh, someone will say goodbye in an eloquent way that leaves everyone in tears. Uh, more often than not, goodbyes are awkward and incomplete and, and sometimes unsatisfying. Paul is saying goodbye to a congregation that he may love more than any other. Uh, he doesn't know it, but he has one or two autumns left, and he will be gone. And he will never see them to, again, and he probably has a hunch that that might be happening. And so when he says goodbye, he says uh, so as a man, as a father, as someone who cares deeply for his friends. And there's not really one theme that he's trying to get across. He's not really trying to preach a sermon. He's just trying to love well as, as he parts. And so tonight I thought we would uh, eavesdrop uh, on this parting. He begins by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. <laughs> and if if you're not careful, he can sound a little bit like your grandma there. You know, like, uh, all right, it's finally, you come around to the Apostle Paul and you finally get enough time to look me up again. I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's missed them, and we don't know what happened, but for some reason, communication has stopped between his friends and himself. 
And you remember, he's in prison. By the standards of the day, he's an older man. He's probably a frail man. He does not know what the future holds. He, he certainly knows that the odds of him being martyred are, are high. And his closest friends stop writing. He's an apostle, but he's human. And you get the sense in this first line that it just really, really encouraged him when they remembered him. As a matter of fact, that word revive, it's in the Greek, it means it refers to flowers blooming in the springtime. He says, I just feel kind of spring again that you remembered me. And as I, th- I thought about that, I wondered, I wonder if there's a Paul in your life, if there's a, an aged saint who is sitting in the prison of their own frailty and solitude somewhere. And maybe there was a time when they were vigorous and active. Maybe there was a time when they were too busy for you. But now they're wondering if they've been forgotten. They're wondering why no one calls, no one writes. Maybe you could take a cue from the Philippians and Reach out. Maybe restore your friendship with, with that older person. Maybe that would bring some springtime to their soul. Well, after he, he gives this outburst of thanksgiving, he writes one of the most cherished sentences in the whole New Testament. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And again, this is kind of an odd way of saying thank you. You know, they have sent him money. You know, we're going to see that in a moment. They've sent Epaphroditus with a financial gift, and it, and it helps, and he's happy about it. But essentially what he says here is, thank you so much for your gift, and by the way, I, I don't really need it because uh, I've learned to be content in, in uh, all things. It's just sort of a quirky twist. But I wonder if what he's, what he's saying is, Philippians, I appreciate your friendship more than you'll ever know, and I also want you to know something about growing older in God. I want you to know that I've come to this place as much as I appreciate this gift that I I really was okay before. I really have gotten to a place where I'm I'm content when I have food and when I don't. And for him in a Roman prison, that was a real question because you had to provide for yourself. And that may have been what the gift went for. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. What is it? What is the secret of of being content in every circumstance? Sometimes I think that we maybe have accepted counterfeits of contentment instead of the real thing that Paul's talking about here. One small thing I'm doing for Lynn is I'm giving up TV. I'm just going to try to spend more time reading in prayer at night. And the person I'm going to miss the most is Ron Swanson. Now, Ron Swanson is my favorite character on Parks and Rec. And Ron doesn't care about anything but bacon. 
And therefore, the challenges of his job do not affect him. I don't think that that is biblical contentment. Is coming to the place in your life where you're like, I don't, I don't care. I'm, I'm over it. I don't think that's, I don't think that's it. I don't think contentment is mellowing out. You know, just you know, I I was you know I cared about the world and all the suffering. I I just got burned out. There was a season in my life, and I just I'm just over it. I don't think that's contentment. I don't think contentment is learning to cope. I don't think it's learning how to manage stress, uh, learning how to kind of deaden the the pain. Um, what is it? Well, he says that he has learned that in suffering and in good times, Christ is enough. That no matter what he goes through, Jesus will give him the strength to keep going. And I think that's what he means by contentment. Not that he enjoys being in prison, not that he loves physical suffering, but that he just has this inner sense of peace that we're going to be okay because I've been here before and Christ has always given me strength to do this. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians 9. He talks about that thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what it was, probably a physical ailment because in Galatians he talks about having some kind of an eye problem, and he just prays, please, please Lord, take, take this away. And God says no. And then, then he says... Um, uh, but God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So his weakness opened him up to Christ's strength. And that's where he found his contentment. I asked a friend who'd been through some hard times, and, and I noticed that she just always seems to be content, whether she's doing really well circumstantially or, or poorly. And here's what she said. She said, I find contentment is a gift of the Spirit that helps me meet Jesus in the hard times. There is just something incredibly sweet when you come to the end of yourself when you're not working in your own strength, then you find a way to rely on the Lord in a new way. And when you say to the Lord, my life is a mess, there is no way I can do this without you. That's where you find true contentment. I thought that's a pretty good definition. Uh, last Wednesday night, there was this forum over at uh, Fulton about community violence, and Xavier uh, Dobson's mom, Zenobia, was there, I don't know her really well at all. Just got to know her a little bit when we coached her son. I've met her a couple times over the past few weeks. And, and uh, she came up and she asked if we had any pictures of her from swimming, of, of Zay, of swimming. And so we dug those up and brought them over to her. And it just, I, I saw in, in, in her uh, not someone who's celebrating by any means, someone who's going through the deepest horror of her life, but I also saw someone sustained by the strength of Christ in a horrible, horrible situation. 
And I think that's the kind of contentment that, that Paul is thinking about here. Well, then Paul goes back to this wonderful gift that the Philippians had given him. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, receiving, except you. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, there's an interesting dynamic going on here, and I want to just touch on it uh, briefly, but there were two kinds of vocational ministers in the early church. There were people that were on staff, on staff. I bet they didn't call it on staff in the first century. (laughs) (laughs) There were leaders in a local congregation, elders, teaching elders, things like that. And then there were vocational ministers, apostles, who were sent out from the churches to plant other churches and meet other needs in the community. And in later years, we, we called them parachurch workers. Para means alongside. A parachurch worker is someone who works alongside of the church. And that's really what Paul was. Paul never uh, you know, was on staff, at a pastor of a church. And if you read his letters carefully, one of the things that you see is that this issue of finances is always a struggle for him. If you read uh, Thessalonians, for example, uh, you, you see that he, he was plagued by accusations that uh, he, he was in it for the money, and so he decides not to take any pay at all, and he works as a tent maker. And There's this tension running through his letters about how he's supposed to support himself as he is a parachurch worker. He's carrying on God's work. And the Philippians were the only church. I'd never seen that before, but of all the churches he planted on, what, three missionary journeys... Only one of them had his picture on their missionary wall. Just one. Nobody else did. And he really loved them for that. But it's not just the money. He he says, you partnered with me, and it's the Greek word koinonia. It's a fellowship. And what he's saying is, there's a deep partnership, there's a deep spiritual fellowship that you and I share because you supported me financially, spiritually, materially, emotionally, in my work. Thank you. It means the world to me. Now, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is, out of your tithe, find a ministry that works alongside the church, and give to it. But don't just write a check. Give your life to it. Some time ago, I was asked to speak out west on um, seeking the peace of the city. And this was particular was a group of, it was a men's Bible study, of fairly uh, well-off West Knoxville guys. And they were asking, what what do I do to seek the peace of the city? I live out here. I'm probably not going to move downtown. I care, though. What do you want me? What should I do? And I said, first thing you do is get a subscription to the New Sentinel. I know nobody does anymore, but try that. Get, get a subscription to the New Sentinel and read the back pages because that's where the good stuff is. And as you read about what's going on in our city, pray to identify the shalom gaps. Pray to identify 
the places in our community where there's a gap between what God desires and what is being experienced. And then ask God to break your heart. And when God breaks your heart for one of those areas of need, don't start your own thing. Come to me, and I'll tell you who's already doing it. And then you adopt that one ministry. You become a specialist in reading, in hunger, in education, in prison reform, in in whatever it is that, that you care about. You become friends with the staff. These guys had money. I said, you give them the keys to your lake house. You, 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 you pay for their vacation. You, you, know, you just you love on these people, and you go into a relationship with them, and you only go to one fundraising banquet a year, theirs. And it's okay to say to all the others, I love you, but I'm into this. This is a really hard calling, and if you've not done it, you, you may not understand why, but a lot of times people that are working you know, on the mission field, uh, ministries like Suzanne's, uh, ministries like Gary Peacock's, uh, ministries like uh, the Butler's have, you know, we've got many people that, that have these kind of very special ministries targeting specific needs in our community. Um, Jane Bullington, what she's doing on the campuses. A lot of us are doing these kind of things. Uh, We have some young life folks here. It's very difficult because you know the church is supposed to receive gifts from the people of God. You want to be careful about fundraising and sort of getting in between all that. And sometimes over the years there's tension between parachurch and church and it can, it can leave you feeling very alone and isolated. Um, and so this principle here, I think, is, is really a beautiful one, that, that what these folks really want is, is a relationship with you. They really want a friendship. And that friendship will, will include money and gifts and things like that, because you'll start to care about what, what they care about. But I'd encourage you to pray about that. See if there's one, one ministry that you can really champion and bless and care for and, and love on. Now, Paul goes on from that, and, and uh, he seems to be worried about their gift to him. He seems to be worried because we know from other verses that they're not a wealthy congregation. And so he reminds them of two things after they've given this generous gift. And, and the first is, is that w- when you give generously and sacrificially to a church, to a missionary, to you know, any kind of an organization that's furthering the work of God in the world, you're really worshiping God. That's really what you're doing. You're not just supporting Jane. You're not just supporting Suzanne. You, you are worshiping God. He says... Uh, um, Somewhere he says this. Their gift is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then he says, Philippians, I want you to remember God's going to provide for you. And evidently, they were worried about that. 
He says, uh, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So as you think about your own giving, you know, as you think about what you're going to do with your resources, those are good principles to keep in mind. Uh, that when you give, you're really worshiping God. It's an act of worship and praise. And when you give generously and sacrificially and you can't afford it, you're giving in faith, trusting that God will provide. Well, Paul's letters all follow the pattern of ancient letter writing. There's a formal way that all letters in the ancient world ended, and this was it. Greet every saint, you give the greetings, you pray a blessing. But Paul has this way of sneaking in stuff. And it's, you know, they really were a persecuted church, and, and, and he has these little cryptic hints that if you weren't on the inside, you wouldn't have gotten. And I, I'm reminded of some of the stuff Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote when he was in prison that the guards wouldn't have understood, but other Christians would have. And so he just texts in there, greet every saint, the brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> that is a subversive statement. Because <laughs> remember, he's about to die. The Philippian church is being persecuted. And Paul is leading to Christ the people who work for the most powerful man in the kingdom. And he's planted a church underneath his feet. (laughs) That is really subversive. And I wonder if this isn't one one of the reasons why Paul was able to have such joy and to be so content is that he could have ended his letter greetings from this lousy jail cell. There were lots of things he could have focused on that were terrible. But he had eyes to see where God was at work around him. To see the kingdom breaking in. And that hope gave him joy. Now let's pray.